Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Arnie's. We are three of Santa's elves with nothing better to do. I'm Austin Terry and I'm joined by my best pals, Matt Johnson and Keith Baker. Matt, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, it's the holiday season, so it's finally time to break down that beautiful, timeless, joyous holiday content. I could not be more excited. Keith, got to bring you in as well. How you doing? Doing good, doing good. Feels good to be back in town. I'm sad that I will be missing the uh, Mandalorian Episode 7 this week, but I will be back for Episode 8, so I'm excited to get back into it and listen to y'all's podcast, Breaking It Down. Well, you know what they say, Keith. Time apart just makes the heart grow fonder, so we did miss you this week, but we're going to be so excited to have you on next week. Appreciate it. Yeah, so just make sure you, if you're listening to our podcast here, just go back to the last episode, which is our review of The Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 7, and the finale's next week. So we'll all be back together reviewing that, so it's going to be exciting if you're a Mandalorian fan. Make sure you don't miss it. All right, well, now that we got that housekeeping stuff out of the way, let's get into today's episode. Today is a special behind-the-scenes edition of The Arnie's. We'll be discussing the newest Netflix doc, The Holiday Movies That Made Us. This miniseries takes us into the making of process of two Christmas classics, Elf and The Nightmare Before Christmas. After tons of interviews with the cast and crew behind these films, we've gotten just a little taste of what it takes to make a movie. Matt, any thoughts before we get into it? Yeah, really enjoyable watch. You know, they made something that could have been really boring to, you know, listen to, actually really engaging and interesting. And they paired it with the right behind the scenes footage and actual you know, shots from the film itself and the people that were all talking throughout all of these, um, you know, the behind the scenes process of both these movies were really actually quite fun to listen to. So I had a really good time watching this. It kind of made me wish that maybe there were more episodes um, going into other Christmas movies. So I have to imagine if, you know, this version of this, you know, the movies that made us is successful, maybe next year they'll add some more. And yeah, and, and Keith, I think this will be kind of an interesting episode because this really isn't a typical review or, or we're not really going to be sharing our opinions on either one of these films. It's just really more of a filmmaking discussion. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Um, you know, lots of things that you see in both these movies that, you, you know, you don't know the full story behind some, you know, some fun and then lots of trouble, too. And uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. All right. Well, let's go ahead and roll that music. And when we come back, we'll be jumping into the making of Elf. All right, so let's go ahead and get into it. The first episode of this series does focus on the movie Elf. Uh, we do have kind of some important names to keep track of here. We have David Berenbaum, who is the writer and creator of this film. Then we've got his pals John Berg and Todd Karmernicki, uh, who helped create and kind of follow his vision throughout the making of this film. Before we jump into the making of Elf, what's y'all's history of watching Elf? When did you did you first see it when it first came out, or is it something you saw later on in your childhood? Matt, I'll let you go ahead and take this first one because I know you have a long storied history with this movie. Yeah, um, I saw it in theaters, so I guess it would have been, you know, holiday time 2003, so I would have been, I guess I would have been nine years old, and yeah, I loved it from the start, pretty much, I mean, that's kind of simple story, that's how my journey began, um, and then, I, I don't know, at, at that time, I think, maybe I'm just misremembering this, but I think back then, if there was, like, a big movie that was Christmas-themed, or, you know, really like something like Elf where Christmas is such a central aspect to it, you really couldn't rent it or buy it until a year later. Like they wouldn't do the thing they do now or they just, you know, who who cares? They just put it in. They like 
they release it in February of the following year. Like usually like you would have to wait a year. Like I remember I couldn't rent Elf from Blockbuster until the following Christmas. And I was so I was so sad about that. But yeah, so then once we um we started renting it and then we bought it basically right after it came out on DVD, and that's the DVD we still use. Um but yeah, I think the cool thing about Elf is it was one of the few movies that our parents took us to see when we, you know, in theaters that they actually got a lot out of as well. And they found genuinely funny and sweet and heartwarming. And kind of over time, Elf has become the big it movie in our household, meaning that it's the one that we save until Christmas Eve night. It's the one that we watch every Christmas Eve. It's really the only movie that we, you know, we have like other movies on in the background during the day, but that's the only one that we actually all four of us sit down watch it from beginning to end. So we've seen it countless times at this point, but we still laugh out loud, have a blast and just love it. I think it's definitely my favorite Christmas movie, certainly up there. And that's my story with it. Yeah, I think for me, this this movie is, is also special to me as well, because I'm not a huge Christmas movie person. I just I've never gotten into them. I, I don't enjoy any of the classics. It's Christmas movies just aren't my thing. And I think the really cool thing about Elf is there really is something in this movie for everybody. Every time I watch it, I expect it to not hold up. And then it just continues to make me laugh every time I watch it. And it is just a really enjoyable movie that does get you into the holiday spirit every year. Definitely. Yeah, I think I came to this movie a little later. And when I say later, I mean like 05, 06, instead of when it came out in 03. I think I saw it at a friend's house for the first time. Thought it was hilarious. And ever since then, yeah, I think I I don't know if I watch it every year like you you guys do, Matthew. But I do watch it like probably every every other year, every two or three years. And it still gets me every time. I think the cast in it Mm -hmm. is awesome. Um, yeah, just a good all around Christmas movie. So let's go ahead and kind of get into the, the behind the scenes stuff. So David Berenbaum is the writer and creator of this film. He is a huge Christmas person growing up. He watches them every year. He has a special relationship with these types of movies. Um, and his favorite movie was Rudolph by Rankin and Bass. And when he kind of got into the filmmaking industry, he really wanted to set out to make a timeless Christmas classic. And he just was inspired by Rudolph. He was living in L.A. at the time, didn't really know anyone, felt like an outsider. And something about his love for Rudolph and his personal experiences clicked. He sat down one night and wrote Elf. And then he took it to a studio who actually was interested. So as a, as a young writer starting out, like right then and there, you're, you know, you're accomplishing a dream. Um, but the studio wanted to cast Chris Farley in the lead, which I found pretty interesting. I can't imagine this movie being a Chris Farley movie, and neither could the writer. So he actually let the one-year option expire, passed on a studio making his movie, and decided to instead bet on himself and take it to um, kind of some unknown people to get this movie made. Yeah, it's it's funny because this is the second movie from the late 90s, early 2000s that Chris Farley was supposed to be in and then ended up not being in it. Shrek was the other one. He was supposed to be Shrek. So it's kind of weird to think that Chris Farley could have been the main character in this one. Just the same way you look at Shrek, it's like you can't imagine anybody doing it but Michael Myers. Just like this one, you can't imagine anybody but Will Ferrell doing it. It's really weird to think about. No, it's a cool story to hear. He's just kind of this new-ish writer and just took a bet on himself and didn't want to compromise on his vision to that extent and somehow made it happen. Got lucky that he met some other really young producers that had just enough pull, I guess, in order to get it pulled up the chain of New Line eventually. So, And Matt, since you kind of have worked on the outsides of the film industry, can you explain how optioning works? Because it is a little confusing, I guess, if, if someone hasn't really heard that term before. Yeah, it all it all works differently. I mean, there's, yeah, there's different rules, different places, and as time passes, stuff changes too. But 
basic the basic version is it sounds like in this specific case he wanted to was it New Line whenever was that the Chris Farley thing or was that just some other studio? I think this was a different studio. Okay, so basically he writes this script and he probably you know they option it which means he gets paid for it. it doesn't necessarily mean that you know something's going to happen right away but basically it's like now they own it and it sounds like in this case I'm not exactly sure how his he was able to let it go for a year without being made. I don't, I didn't understand that aspect of it, but it sounds like basically he optioned the script, maybe got paid for it and then just ended up not agreeing with the vision. And then in this case, it was a one year, like we can make this movie and that didn't happen. So after the year is up, basically with optioning, it's kind of like rights. So the rights go back to him as the sole writer. And now he, now that that year has passed and it's back with him and not owned by the studio, he can actually, go out and try and get other studios to make it. Yeah, I think the way I understood it was um, an optioning means the studio has the option to buy the movie if a director wants to make it. So I think in order for him to let that one year pass, I think he just probably never approved a director. So he let that one year run out and then it transferred back to him. I just didn't, I, maybe it was a small studio because I just didn't, under, I mean, writers don't have a lot of pull unless you're like Steven Spielberg. So I didn't understand why they didn't get a director. So and it, it doesn't really matter. It's just all semantics, but... Um, I thought it was interesting and it obviously worked out that he was able to wait a year without it getting made. Like maybe it was just the studio itself, you know, after a year, they didn't find a good enough or interesting director to do it. Maybe Chris Farley just ended up not wanting to do it however long ago it was. And so just, you know, stuff worked out and timing was perfect. So it was, that year actually was able to pass and he could get it to where it ended up. Can you imagine how just hard of a decision that must have been? Because here you're right on the cusp of getting like your first movie made. Mm -hmm. And as, as everybody knows, Hollywood is such a hard industry to break into. And then you're having to decide whether like, am I going to gamble on myself and, and maybe never get this chance again? Or am I going to let the studio compromise my vision and make the movie they want to make? Yeah. And then if they make a bad movie and you're like the only name on that writing credit, then maybe you're not going to get another gig because this one was bad or something. So definitely a risk. Definitely a risk. That's the lesson of Hollywood. You got to stick to your guns on what you want to do. Yeah, and it's crazy that even these young, like new producers that he met, were like I said, even able to get it up the chain of New Line enough so that like the next person could see it and go, "Oh, this is really good," and that just keeps moving, and then enough people like it that it actually reaches the top where they can make that decision. And even with the director, John Favreau, I mean, really, like they mentioned here, in terms of directing, you know, he had written stuff and he was acting and stuff like Swingers, but. Um, when it came to directing, very little experience, which, as we now know, he has a lot more. I think he only had one movie to his name. Yeah, at, at that, that time, time, yeah. So even with him, the person you know supposedly leading the charge here as the director, there was not a lot of experience, and just a, basically a bunch of people with little to no experience led to the movie we got. So way more interesting story, basically behind the scenes of how this movie got made than I would have ever anticipated. I like the uh, the process of them choosing each cast member and how they, you know, collected such a diverse cast with some being well-known in Hollywood, like James Caan. He was in the uh, the Godfather movies as uh, Sonny Corleone, you know, well-known actor. And also Bob Newhart, well-known comedian and actor. And then they had the more unknown, like Will Ferrell. And Will Ferrell had just became sort of known. He was known from SNL, but that was about it. And he just became sort of known from doing Old School with Vince Vaughn. And then we also had a younger... Zoe Deschanel, which which I was kind of looking, I was like, man, Zoe Zoe Deschanel does not age no, at all. Yeah. 
She looks yeah, exactly she the looks same the there same. Yeah. as she does in New Girl. You mentioned Will Ferrell there, Keith. It's, it's hard to think of a time when Will Ferrell isn't a household name, but, but this really was before he was in anything except SNL. And they really kind of dive into here how much of a backlash they had from multiple studios trying to cast Will Ferrell. They, a lot of studios were interested in this movie, but nobody wanted Will Ferrell in the lead. People thought they were crazy. And they just, they just got really lucky that they met Kale Boiter, who was a junior executive at New Line Cinema, but he was a huge Will Ferrell fan. So he was willing to buy in and try and get this movie made with Will Ferrell yeah, in the lead. This guy was a complete idiot. It sounds like this guy did not know what he was doing. It, literally, it sounded like his contribution was, I like Will Ferrell. His contribution is, I like Will Ferrell and I work at a, a studio and have some sort of clout there. But this is definitely a guy that seems like he failed upward. Well, and we're going to also talk about the the legal aspects of this movie as well, which he seemingly did not help. Like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. So there were, there were some funny elements to the whole uh, story as well with that. But, yeah, it's crazy because... um. You know, most people from SNL, you can still, I guess, modern SNL, I should say, but not a lot of them are like A-list stars like Will Ferrell is. I mean, you have a lot of people from that era that were able to go on and do other things like, you know, maybe it kind of made them a bigger comedic actor. They get a lot of um, bit parts or they play a lot of like funny side characters and stuff, but very few of them actually are like A-list, I would say, from that era. Adam Sandler, of course, similar trajectory. But yeah, Will Ferrell, you know, as they talked about, he came off SNL and, you know, SNL can, like like they said, it's like, yeah, he'd be great for a side character, but I mean, that's all he's done. We're going to make him the lead of this movie. Yeah, they're trying to build a movie around Will Ferrell, which hadn't been done yet. Yeah, and it sounds like they really got lucky with the fact that Old School had just happened. Like, I guess Old School was the first thing he did, a smaller comedy um, right after getting off SNL, and then that just ended up also becoming this mega hit and people loved him in it so it actually kind of worked out for them in terms of people probably wanting to go see the movie because actually knew who will ferrell was like the general movie going audience mm -hmm. and i also found it really interesting how they got um kind of hooked up with john favreau because it, it really is just such a weird like all these people who were unknown in all their roles like we mentioned they all were able to connect and it seems like they were the perfect crew to make this movie um, John Favreau had had three things that he brought to the table that when he whenever they were interviewing for him and it was Favreau brought a Rankin and Bass book which was the writer's favorite movie um, and saying hey this should be the goal for this film is we is we want to make it like this and then he also wanted uh, he also wanted this to be a family movie and he wanted to make a timeless Christmas classic which are the three things that the rest of this crew uh, David Berenbaum John Berg and Ton Kormanicki they all that was their three goals as well so it was just like a perfect fit of these three these three and three to four individuals meeting. And coming together it's funny it's because it's different from our story with um uh, nightmare before christmas when there's more clashing involved in the story this one seems like there's everybody kind of got along and had the same vision and they were cooperating but yeah it's pretty cool john favreau went on to do all the things he's done like iron man and now he's doing mandalorian and all that I know, you can almost make an argument if he doesn't do this movie maybe he doesn't have the same career that he's had no because this was his first you know big success as a director so i think this you can look at the timeline and see how he can get linked up with he can get in the room now so i mean i think at, at the very least you know thinking about the stuff he did in between i mean i think you can draw a pretty straight line from something like elf and that big success to something like iron man i really do um and obviously without iron man none of the other stuff we're talking about in the future would ever happen especially mandalorian with disney so yeah i think this is a really important movie I really liked how they got James Caan too. How they just asked him to do it, and he's like, "Why not?" <laughs> there was just no, there was no thought to it. He's just like, "Okay." Yeah. 
Yeah, that sounds good. It's also interesting that they were all kind of scared to work with him too, because he had such a poor reputation yeah. of being of being difficult on set. Yeah, he's insane. He played a good part in the movie, though. Oh yeah, he's great in the movie. <laughs> but, yeah, he's crazy. Um, the Rankin and Bass stuff was always cool, just because that was something I watched on repeat whenever December hit when I was a little kid. Um, Rudolph, I watched a lot, and also Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which are just basically stop-motion origin stories for those characters. And Rankin and Bass are huge. I mean, you can go back and look at everything else they did, Frosty the Snowman, all of this iconic stuff. And I actually rewatched for the first time in probably 15 years or more um, Rudolph and Santa Claus is Coming to Town the other day. And they, they still, I mean, they still hold up in their visual styles. It was so cool that they basically just were like... We're trying to figure out how to make our North Pole, and it's a live-action movie, but our North Pole is going to be that. So it, it it was interesting to see that basically the origin of that was just that the writer was a fan of it, and then they actually made it happen. So it, I think I think there might have been a little bit to that whole rip, ripping yeah, off yeah, conversation. Yeah, we, got, we got kind of got but... to talk about that because uh, as as we mentioned, David Barenbaum and John Favreau were, were huge fans of Reckon and Bass, and, and they wanted people to look at this movie and be able to see kind of the, the ties to the Rankin and Bass animation style whenever they were doing the North Pole scenes, um, which actually led to the studio mm-hmm. uh, being concerned that, hey, we uh, we might be opened up for some legal action here. So what do you guys think? Do you think they they could have been sued for ripping off Rankin and Bass, or do you think it really they really did kind of toe the line of being inspired by? No. I mean, they, they ripped... I think the way you phrase that is the right way to phrase it. They certainly... They certainly could have been successfully sued. Like, there's no. I I think they probably towed the line too much. I mean, the outfits are the exact same. The actual set of the North Pole looks the exact same. Some of the actions they do, like the iconic imagery of Rudolph, Yukon Cornelius, and Hermie the Elf, like riding on the little piece of ice uh, to escape. I mean, the, the same stuff happens. Like the all the creatures look the exact same. The set of the actual like interior looks the exact same. Like I said, the outfits and. Yeah, so I think they deservedly could have been sued. And the snowman as well, the guy that introduces, um, I'm trying to remember which one. I think it's, yeah, it's Rudolph, the one that, like they have a snowman character that's kind of like the narrator. And he looks the exact same as um, the snowman from Elf as well. So yeah, probably towed the line a bit too much. Yeah, uh, they probably they probably could have toned it down a little bit. I mean, they, they could have kept the inspiration from it and maybe had some things that called back to it just to kind of have that nostalgic feel of it, but. They didn't have to go. I can't imagine this movie without all that, though, either. Like, I'm, I'm yeah, glad. I know. No, no, no. Yeah, to be clear, to be clear, I love yeah. that they did it. I mean, for me, I don't give a shit because I'm, I'm not, not getting sued. Yeah. In, like, some, <laughs> someone getting sued. So whenever I watch Elf, I just have, I'm just filled with nostalgia for the Rankin and Bass movies that I watched when I was even younger from the first time I saw Elf. So I love it. I just think whenever I heard the conversation of, how are we going to get sued? What did we do? It's like, <laughs> uh, I think it's not too shocking, but I, I, yeah, I love that they, I love that it ended up working out and it's actually in the movie because certainly there, I don't think we've seen anything like that in a big budget, like, you know, blockbuster where they're actually taking something that iconic and really towing the line between homage. And so you can actually just see the direct inspiration. Well, it is cool. a really good thing that the person leading their legal defense was Kale Boiter, a junior executive. <laughs> Yeah. Why are we getting sued? I love Will Ferrell. That was his contribution. Um, so we did kind of touch on this, but uh, Old School did did release just months before uh, Elf came out. Suddenly New Line Cinema was a little worried because all of a sudden they have Frank the Tank as the lead 
uh, in the Christmas movie. So I found it really interesting that the studio actually tried to go in and edit this movie in a way where all of the kind of the heartwarming Christmassy scenes are taken out of the movie. And they did try to turn it into more of an adult comedy. Um, and, and this kind of does tie into some recent films that we've seen where studios get nervous and start meddling films such as Suicide Squad, Justice League, The Rise of Skywalker. Um, so it, it just seems like studios can't get out of their own way when, when they get nervous. It's a classic Hollywood thing where they just can't, they always have to do the same thing. It's like they, they can't stand there being a new idea or a new way of story. They're like, well, Bill Farrell did this, so th- and he yeah, did it this way, so this point. one should be this way. Why? Why can't he do something different? Yeah, they're looking at the success of old school and they're going, well, we'll just have an old school Christmas movie. And it's like nobody wants to see frat boy Will Ferrell in a Christmas movie. They want to see a heartwarming buddy, the elf Will Ferrell, you know? Yeah, I just don't know what that cut even looked like. I'd love to watch it just because I don't know how they would have cut around certain things to make it more supposedly appealing to, I guess, adults. Um, And then they, they literally described that in that original cut, the movie ends, I guess, in the big third act whenever they're... um whenever Buddy's fixing the sleigh and then there's a moment wherever he finally fixes it and Santa like turns on the engine or whatever and it kind of fires up and then they're able to take off. And I guess maybe they're going to have like some wide shot that shows them finally taking off and like have like the parents waver. Like, I don't know, but that, that was the end of the movie. And they were like, they cut out all of the stuff where they show all of like the characters Buddy has touched throughout his entire journey, like reflecting in Zoe Deschanel having that great moment where she sings, um, which one does she sing? You better watch out. Um, and I was like, how did they cut all that? It's literally the point of the movie. <laughs> they were like, nah, we'll just cut well, it. Well, they out. even took out all the Christmas cheer stuff, too, with the meter. Right, right. So it was so crazy that it almost ended without, like, the actual payoff to the movie. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was crazy. I guess it is also worth mentioning that New Line Cinema at the time really only did horror movies. So a lot of their executives didn't really understand how to make a Christmas movie. So they were already were nervous from the start because this is the studio that brought you like the Nightmare on Elm Street and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's again, maybe that also worked out in their favor. I mean, if this was Paramount, Universal or Warner Brothers, maybe like they make this cut and they're like, yeah, sorry, that's what we're putting out. Like we know what we're doing. Um, and maybe that would have happened with New Line, which was a newer, um, like Austin mentioned, they were known for more genre stuff. And the biggest thing they had done is in 2003, they would have, like at the exact same time, they would have been putting out Return of the Kings. So they would have just finished the Lord of the Rings movies. But that's really it. So it sounded like maybe the fact that they weren't this humongous studio, John Favreau, this newer director, could go and be like, look, I, this isn't what we're going to do. Like, we have to stick to the vision. It has to be that. And they actually listen to this young director so yeah it was interesting compared to stuff we hear about today like you mentioned with all these we even talked about in previous episodes about studio meddling and projects completely changing and all this crazy stuff so again another example of standing up for what you want and it worked out for the better clearly and i i honestly don't even know if they did listen to john favreau i think the thing that kind of worked in their favor when they mentioned it in this episode is uh, they really made, they set out to make a Christmas movie. Oh, and oh, yes, yeah. There yeah, really yeah. was no way for the studio to edit the movie and have it be an adult comedy. It just, they couldn't do it. Like, it was impossible for them to edit that way. So I thought that was really interesting, too, that the cast and crew worked so hard to make a timeless classic that the studio couldn't even find a way to fuck it up. Yeah, and it sounds like with, um, at the very least, John Favreau and, and David Barenbaum were at least able to say, just let us edit it how we want. And then all we ask is that you show that to a room full of it sounded like they basically did a screening for people that somehow they deemed were big fans of old school. And like they just filled a theater with those people and then showed them the cut that we 
ended up seeing and they all loved it. I was like, okay, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool how uh, John Favreau uh, decided not to use that much digital effects in it. And they, I like, I really yes. liked the part where they broke yeah. down the force perspective uh, scenes with the, oh, with that the was elves so cool. and how they made Will Ferrell look bigger. Uh, that was that that was really cool yeah and for for those of you listening that don't really know force perspective is is a really tedious way of filming where you try to uh, make perspective wise like like will ferrell's playing a human elf so he's going to be in a room full of small people but they need will ferrell to seem like a giant but they're still working with regular people so without going into any digital stuff how do you make that happen and you do it by like using different camera angles spacing things like 10 feet apart so it takes forever to set up the set and then you're really only getting like a minute of footage out of it before you can then go back and, and change the set again. So it takes forever to film. Yeah, it's all about angles and where you place people. So it's like they showed the scene of um, this great scene where they're going through all the elf tenants. And uh, there's the, it's this great scene where, you, where the, it's where you see Will Ferrell for the first time in the movie. And the camera's panning over and there's all these little small elves in their classroom sitting like seats or whatever. And then it gets to the very end and there's huge adult Will Ferrell in his elf costume sitting there. And it's like... How do they do? How does it look so much bigger? Is that digital? And no, what it actually is is they showed us the actual. The actual way they shot it is Will Ferrell's not sitting next to them. He's like probably five feet in front of them and to the right. And then you just turn the camera until he matches uh, the angle there. So it's really cool. A new line again, famously probably the most. Fa- if you want to look into Force perspective, where you can find some really cool things, the most famous example is what New Line did the you know the previous years with um, the Lord of the Rings movies, where you have. Characters that are 10 foot tall wizards and hobbits that are like three feet tall, but they're in the same frame, seemingly standing right next to each other. And there's no digital altering, which is pretty cool. So it, it was crazy to see that they brought it to a movie like this in a really cool way. Just another example of the perfect cast, crew and studio coming together to make this movie, really. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? They actually, in my opinion, this was a big part of how they that third rule that John Favreau said of making a timeless classic. I mean, as we've talked about before, the less digital you have, the more you can do that. Cause you can't say now watching elf 17 years after it came out, none of these scenes where Will Ferrell is this huge guy standing next to elves. They all look great because there's no digital in it. It's just, you know, camera work and do, doing the whole stop motion Rankin and Bass thing. You can watch those movies that came out in the sixties and seventies and they still look great. Cause it's just, not yeah. digital. It's just actual like models and stop motion. So yeah, I mean, it's timeless in that sense too. The fact that it's actually going to hold up visually for forever, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So finishing kind of along those lines, I just really love this episode because it really seems like a project that was doomed from the start based on everything we talked about and particularly the experience level of everybody involved. But I guess New Line was the right people. They bought enough into the concept and trusted Favreau enough that whenever he stands up for his vision, like we talked about, uh, I guess they came around and I just can't believe it's it's such a canned response saying we're going to make a timeless classic. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? It's just like if it's people so like weird it, to have that you just... as your goal, too. You I know, because does that mean like people walk out of the theater? I liked it. And then you just do a check mark next to your rule. But no, <laughs> they actually somehow showed us in this episode that there was more to it than just making a good movie that's timeless. Like they actually the Rankin and Bass influenced the stop motion and then just an actor like Will Ferrell playing that kind of character with that sort of innocence. And he's not making jokes. That's not how the comedy works in this movie. He's just so innocent and naive and a fish out of water that stuff ends up being funny. And that's, again, because it's not like going back to watch a comedy from 30 years ago. It's not like the jokes don't hold up because he's not making jokes. (laughs) The situation's just funny. It's just situational comedy. So it's timeless in the sense that if you told me, like, 
if I'd never seen Elf and 50 years from now, like someone plays it for me for the first time, it's like this could have been made in the late 80s or 2030, you know, <laughs> like it just you wouldn't be able to tell. And they somehow achieved what they set out to do. And it was really cool to see. It's inspiring as well. Like you guys mentioned at the beginning, I mean, a lot of these people were on their first big jobs and I don't know, it just paid off. It was inspiring. And it's my personal favorite Christmas movie. Like I said, works for all ages, still holds up and just getting to watch how it was made. Um, it, it was really awesome. I, I just think it's so crazy that this was everybody's first movie. Yeah. This episode is really enjoyable because it, it is really cool to see kind of the human side of, of things that go into making a movie. I think it's really easy to get caught up in like director's names and famous actors, but really that's maybe 1% of the people on set. Everybody else on set is just an everyday person doing a day job. And so it, I think this episode really did a good job of showing just that there are regular be people behind these projects. And a lot of these people were just trying to make a, a movie for their kids to enjoy. And that was mm -hmm. kind of their goal. And that was really the motivation behind why they were making this movie. Oh, yeah. And there were some really sweet moments with that, too, at the very end where like they was like John Favreau just wanted to make a movie that his at the time one year old son could look back. Yeah, on I thought and that was cool. Feel like this timeless classic. And then, of course, his son plays young buddy the elf so he's sitting on bob newhart's lap <laughs> yeah. for that scene and it was like oh you know this is really kind of a special and you know it's cool to see that even something like that there's payoff to in real life so very very cool very cool this movie for particularly too because their only big names attached to this film at the time was was will ferrell and james Caan. so everybody else even the actors are unknown pretty much so it, it really was kind of a, a long even then will everybody. ferrell was still because yeah, even then like we talked about will yeah will ferrell was a yeah. nobody and james Caan was Everybody, even in this, called him Sonny Corleone, and he's a great actor, um, but I guess you could probably say his best days were behind him whenever they cast him in Elf. I mean, Misery was decades ago, and all these great films were pretty far off, so it was cool that those two big names, you know, led this project, and they weren't really big at the time. Crazy to think about. One of the best success, success stories from this movie is John Favreau, you know, going on to make Iron Man oh, yeah. and, and produce the Avenger movies. And then now he's doing Mandalorian. Cowboys and Aliens. Don't forget to mention Chef. Yes, he did Chef, oh, Chef. and the Chef Show. Wow. So this guy's all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. Good for him. Good for him. Let's go ahead and move on now to our second episode and our second movie of the day. And it is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, I guess kind of the important names we got to run down here is Tim Burton, who is the creator. Uh, Henry Selleck, who is the director and a, a fellow animator that, that Tim Burton met at Disney. Uh, Rick Heinrichs, who is a, the visual consultant on the film and kind of Tim Burton's right-hand man. We also have Kathleen Gavin who is the producer and uh, the Disney executive that was in charge of the finances for this movie. We have the composer, Danny Elfman. Then we have uh, another writer, Carolyn Thompson, who is also Elfman's girlfriend at the time. For me, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time, and I'm still, I still haven't rewatched it yet. This one's going to be in our upcoming uh, Best Holiday Movies bracket, so we'll see how far it goes. And Elf is also in that one, too, so it's kind of cool. Both of these movies from this from this series made it into our bracket yeah i'm glad you said that keith because that we did want to do this episode before uh next week's episode because because both of these films are attached to the bracket and so we felt like this would kind of tie in nicely to have some of this really uh behind the scenes talk exactly yeah it'll be a fun little tease because obviously when we do the bracket next week that'll be more about breaking down i suppose the actual quality of the film whereas we actually get to look behind the scenes so it's pretty interesting here so i mean what's y'all's history with this movie have y'all 
I think Austin, you said you just rewatched it. No, this was uh, this was actually first oh, for uh, the my first, first time. time seeing oh, okay. it. I I made sure to watch the Nightmare Before Christmas before this behind the scenes thing because I'd never seen it, mm. and also we're trying to pre- prepare for the bracket, like we said. Um, and, and I'll just share my quick thoughts. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think I actually really enjoyed this behind the scenes look at it even more though, because this re- this movie really is a long shot to get made as well. I've seen Nightmare Before Christmas uh, a decent amount of times in my life. Um, first watched it when I was. Probably, I wouldn't say like a kid, maybe like, I don't know, 10 or 11, I want to say. Maybe Bowser in the first time, maybe a little bit younger. So I was young when I first saw it, and I've seen it at a few different ages, and most recently I watch it. I do tend, I guess we'll talk about this maybe when we get to our bracket. I don't, I think this is a Halloween movie for me. Um, so I watch it usually on Halloweens, and I, and I did watch it this year on Halloween. And like like we mentioned, I guess we'll talk about quality more next week in our bracket. I don't like this movie. Um, I've, I've never really liked it. I love it. And it's funny because there is actually moments in this behind the scene. I, cer- I certainly appreciate how important it is and the influence and all that. Don't get me wrong. But the actual um, – they mentioned it here is like – I can't even remember the context. I'll, I'll try and remember. But there was a moment here where they mentioned like th- – I think it was in, in response to how it didn't do great at the box office when it first came out. And there were reviews that were like – some people, you know, really like the story, but the songs are lame. And then some, and then I think Danny Elfman was one that was like, and then some people love the songs, but and that hated the story. And then it cuts like Gene Siskel from Siskel and Ebert talking like, I like the songs, but this story fucking sucked. And that that's how I feel about the movie. I hate the story of this movie. I think it's so lame and they just shove in too much at the end for me to enjoy. But I love, I love the songs. And I actually have like a little extra experience with uh, this movie. Um, the Kingdom Hearts series of games, the whole games where you uh, kind of that meld Final Fantasy and Disney that I've been playing since like the early 2000s. One of the worlds you get to go to in that is Halloween Town. So the music's always ingrained in my oh, head. Oh, that's and really cool. I do really like the characters. And a lot of it is because you get to, you know, play uh, play with them in your party in those games and stuff. And they tell original stories in those. So it was actually kind of like a fun little uh I guess, supplemental content, you would say, that I've had with this series. The the movie itself, I'm not the biggest fan of. But that being said, we're not reviewing the movie. We're talking about the behind the scenes. And definitely, without a doubt, a pretty interesting and complicated story. So at the very least, watching the behind the scenes was actually really, really engaging. Yes, I think I think a lot of people might know the general story about this movie. Uh, This kind of this movie was kind of always Tim Burton's fever dream. Um, He was a young animator at Disney who never really fit in. Um, He got hooked up with uh, Rick Heinrichs and Henry Selleck, who were also animators and visual creators. And they all three of them were kind of oddballs who didn't want to do the typical Disney animation. They wanted to make kind of horror, uh, scarier animation stuff. And uh, eventually, Tim Burton would leave Disney. He would go on to find success in, in all kinds of movies, um, one of them being Pee-wee's Grand Adventure, the other ones, of course, being the Batman franchise. And eventually, Disney was like, man, we really let this guy get away. So Tim Burton come back to Disney and says, I want to make my movie. I want to make The Nightmare Before Christmas. And Disney was like, all right, we'll let you do it. We want to work with you on this. But then he also gets offered to make Batman Returns. And he gets offered to have full creative freedom with that movie as well. Um, and so he doesn't pass up on that opportunity. So instead of actually going and making this movie, he asks his friends, Henry Selleck and Rick Heinemann, to, uh, Rick Heinemann to consult on visuals and Henry Selleck to direct. And that's kind of how The Nightmare Before Christmas gets made. Yeah, they definitely talk about it here. You know, people, whether you like this movie or not, you know, you got to pay respect to Henry Selleck, the guy that actually directed it and clearly carried most of 
the process and that role because Tim Burton was never involved. I mean, and even as a producer, he certainly deserves credit as the guy that conceptualized this and created the idea of it. But really beyond that, I didn't do anything, to be honest. It sounds like he just gave thumbs up a couple times along the way when it came to like scripting and songs like, yeah, sounds good. There's been one part where somebody did a whole rewrite of the script and sent it to him and he just wrote great with an exclamation point on it. Those were his notes. So, yeah, I like Tim Burton. I'm, I'm a fan of his work, but this does sound pretty in line with who he is. If you've like seen other like behind the scenes stories with him. He's definitely a total oddball. But I mean, yeah, I do love his movies, especially uh, Beetlejuice is probably my favorite of his. Oh, yeah. Yeah, classic yeah. and then i do i do like the uh the uh batman movies too yeah because he well he got full creative control on returns and i love batman returns i think it's so much better than the first one for me so it it is interesting to kind of think about batman returns in relation to this because they're made at the same time and how some of those uh some of them and, and being made at things. the same time too right which kind of messed up a lot of things and made things really <laughs> probably harder than they should have been so yeah yeah, so probably one of the more interesting things I found in this episode was um, how they make the stop motion picture animation and how long and tedious the process is. Uh, you know, just you have to take 100 pictures just to get like two seconds of filming. And I think they, they were saying right. how they did a minute a day, which is crazy. No, a, mi- a minute a week. A, a minute, minute a week. week. That's right. Yeah, a minute a week. And it took so it took two years to make. Yeah, so two years to make is kind of crazy, and and this is interesting too because it does kind of tie into what we talked about with forced perspective, where that is also a tedious way to film. Stop motion is an even more tedious way to film. It, it takes a really special group of people that want to film this way because it is so time consuming, so tedious, and it, it's kind of a reason that a lot of these movies um, aren't really big production based movies because they do take so long to get made and they do end up going over budget as well. Yeah, and to kind of bring it back to Elf for a second, since these are our two episodes. Episodes, might as well tie it back when we can um, for context to give, I guess, to make it more understandable why this was so much harder. They talked about an elf, how there was this whole opening sequence during the Rankin and Bass North Pole stuff where they wanted to have the snowman character basically move alongside and talk a little bit with Buddy. And they hadn't done it at the time, so they had to do it after the fact with the stop motion. And they, they said that they had this expert come in in order to do it last minute and did it and worked for 27 hours straight. And when you watch that sequence in the movie, it's a snowman. There's no legs. So all they're really doing is just moving it. I mean, the pictures probably aren't that hard to take, just moving slightly forward. And the mouth on the snowman isn't too expressive. So comparing to (laughs) A Nightmare Before Christmas, you're making a musical where, and you have like so many different characters and scenes talking to each other that are all stop motion. And they have to be very expressive. Like they showed you all the different heads of the characters that you have to put on between each like facial mouth movement. And then it's also a musical. So they're, they're also singing. So it's just the fact that this took two years almost seems like pretty good. Because yeah. it's been taken Because forever. I know Cars, the movie Cars took, I think, three and a half to four years to make. Oh, yeah. They take a long time, those Pixar movies. Yeah. So speaking of stop motion, too, I, I think really kind of an unsung hero of this film getting made is Kathleen Gavin. Just... Because um, she really was the one that was in charge of the finances and, and negotiating with Disney for this movie. And originally, the budget set was was 18 million. And, and as they got into production, they realized they needed 24 million. Uh, they were kind of worried that Disney wasn't fully bought into this movie, so they were really nervous about asking for 18 million. So what Kathleen Gavin did is she went to the executives of Disney, showed them the movie, the full movie that they wanted to make, and they loved it. And she said, great, this is the, the movie that you're watching right now costs 24 million. Here's what it would look like if, if we made an $18 million movie. And they hated that version. So I, I just thought that was such a really cool way of like 
um, just really showing how much uh, negotiating with a studio kind of goes into getting a movie made as well. No, that, that was really interesting. And, you know, playing it up a bit, because obviously they could have made an $18 million version that probably would have been fine, just to cut out, a, a, you know, a few major segments. I mean, sure, they're probably important, but you could probably get by. But just like they probably took out a couple extra things that they didn't need to, but, you know, they're able to get the money that they needed. So it was really cool to watch that kind of negotiation work out. Yeah, so I guess this will kind of, I don't know, show my personal opinion on the movie a little bit, but we'll see how this goes. I feel like the whole cobbling together aspect of this movie really shows on the final product. Like, I think the songs are terrific, but the story just isn't great for me, and they just shove in so much near the end. It it just seems part of this is they talk about how they made the music first because they had the original writer ended up just doing coke and not writing anything. So they had to get another writer, <laughs> meaning they just never had a script. So Danny Elfman kind of took the lead and was like, I guess I'll make the music first. And then we'll try and develop the rest of the story around those like musical moments. So it was just odd to see that clearly the second writer who was um, Caroline Thompson and Henry Selleck just couldn't agree on anything. And then on top of that, it seemed like neither of them – I don't even know how to word this. It's like Henry was the director, but it seemed like he still wouldn't do anything without Tim Burton's A-OK. And same with her. So it was just this odd thing where they didn't agree and then Tim Burton, I guess, wasn't helping them as much as – because he couldn't. And so it was this whole just weird – back and forth and then there <laughs> was this weird moment at the end where apparently like at a screening caroline thompson's like i'm gonna rewrite the ending and then tim burton just has a, a freak out and then she's like so i never got to rewrite the ending i was like what <laughs> like why are you trying to rewrite the ending at the, at the very end it, it was so confusing at times and so they, they also had an argument too about caroline's script because henry Selick is also an animator so he's looking at at taking a script and then creating it from an animator's perspective where she's just yeah. looking at it from a, from a story flow perspective so they could never kind of really come to terms and agree on a final script without Tim Burton getting involved. And as we said, Tim Burton is working on Batman Returns. So he's sending back one word notes. Great. Hate it. You know, that sort of stuff. So it, it's, it just seems like the production for this movie was just really hamstringed by everyone's different focuses. Yeah. And then they sent that Rick guy in, the visual consultant. Who's also working on Batman Returns as well. Yeah. His whole job was to make sure everything looked like it was a Tim Burton project essentially and he somehow was the one that was able to bring together henry Selleck and caroline thompson um which i was kind of on henry's side for that one i don't know like it, it was just weird that <laughs> she wouldn't change anything well have you guys seen the movie Coraline? yeah yeah so that's by henry Selleck, and it looks a lot like this one even though i don't think tim burton yeah. had anything to really do with Coraline. no no but yeah it kind of shows how talented henry Selleck is in his own way oh yeah the animation's great in this movie, no doubt. I also liked how you brought up them starting with the music as well, Matt, because I, I do kind of agree with you. I think the story's pretty good here, but for me as well, I think the music is the best part of this film. Danny Elfman's score here is incredible. It's crazy to oh, think yeah. that he never even wanted to be a film composer. Um, and I, I also found it really interesting how they never they didn't really have any actors or anything cast too. So when he is writing this music, he's singing all the parts as demos. And then yeah. he becomes so attached to Jack Skellington that he goes to Tim Burton and says, hey... I really need you to keep my voice in this movie. So it is actually him singing in the movie as well. Yeah, which is so rare. I mean, we know he's one of the most famous film composers probably ever, just with his iconic scores. Like, the Batman 89 score is just absolutely fantastic, and he's done so much other great stuff too. But um, it, it is weird knowing him for that, and then he is, you know, he sings everything that Jack Skellington does. And there's so much music and singing that, you know, he is, he ends up being in a lot of the movie. So, yeah, it was cool to see how he actually broke down how he became attached to the character and he felt a closeness to him because he was, 
it was an outsider and he felt alone and he was at the time ready to leave his big successful band. So he just felt really passionate. Was like, yeah, I guess I want to, I want to do it. And Tim Burton gave the A okay. So yeah, I, I like seeing that too. And then they kind of developed this whole thing where Caroline Thompson seemed like her best, I suppose, uh, contribution was making Sally an actual character. And then how those two came together. And there was this weird thing where they're both dating in real life. And then their characters start to get close. And she represents Sally. He represents Jack Skellington. And then even though they didn't end up staying together, it is this kind of cool, like, well, this little thing moment in time that captures elements of that. They're also living together, too, through this creative process. So they're, they're both and making just it living in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they're also kind of just living and breathing this movie uh, yeah. in every aspect of their personal lives. Yeah, it was funny how, like, blunt everybody was talking about everybody else that was involved it just <laughs> yeah. not like they were just kind of like yeah he was kind of shitty or yeah he smoked he or he snorted <laughs> all the coke up and didn't do anything <laughs> yeah. yeah it really seems like because with with alpha it really seemed like that crew was a family it seems like with this crew they were just there to do a job almost they were just yeah they were just bickering the whole time well and then whenever whenever the studio made the call to uh for like business purposes they made the call to changed the title of the movie to Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And that pissed everybody off because it's like, this guy isn't doing anything. Like he may, I get, he gave the idea he deserves credit, but I'm the one making this movie. Like all my team of animators and writers, I mean, he's not doing any of that. So yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we kind of touched on this already, but I was honestly really surprised how little Tim Burton had to do with this film. I, I didn't really know anything about this movie. I, obviously I knew like it really holds a special place in people's hearts. But I, didn't, I didn't know really anything other than it was called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. So I, I had always thought that this was Tim Burton's big break. I thought this was what kind of shot him into the stratosphere of filmmaking. And it was really interesting for me to watch this movie and then realize he he was probably on set for maybe like 30 minutes at a time. Like he really had nothing to do with this film other than just the drawing. It sounds like he only visited once. And that was where he put yeah. the hole through the wall. It sounded like he oh, was never story. actually there. Yeah. Well, it, it was a fascinating story. And Tim Burton's origin story, if you will, is really interesting how he's this kind of a loner with a two-year contract at Disney. He makes a few friends along the way that obviously become very important figures in his life and in the context of this movie. But his work isn't fitting in with the Disney mold at the time, so he gets canned at the end of his contract. And then basically, there's a 10-year period where he rises to the stratosphere of one of the most famous directors ever. You know, he directs um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and The Batman, 1989. So he directs all those movies. He's one of the most famous people in the world, probably. Like, everybody knows the name Tim Burton, and they love his movies. And then that's when Disney's like, let's make this movie. And then he can't. So it was just so fascinating, his story and how he was able to kind of leverage his fame to get the movie made. So without him, certainly it wouldn't have been made. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, it was shocking that because he was on Batman Returns, I think he only visited the set, if you if you want to call it the set, like where they were making it once. And then otherwise it was just passing notes occasionally. So And everybody was scared of him too. Like they talk about how they were so yeah. nervous that day he did come to set as well. Yeah. And then he literally, why did he kick a hole in the wall again? Because they were changing the ending. He never wanted the ending changed. They, so they wanted to change the Oogie Boogie character to have the mad scientist be underneath that costume. And that was what set Tim Burton off. And he ended up kicking a hole in the wall. Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So I think they called it Tim's Big Hole or something like that. Tim's Big Hole. Yes, that's exactly what they should have called it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it was fascinating that they at least went into what his involvement was to actually kind of understand the context. So very interesting. Very interesting. Two very different perspectives, though. Elf, everybody gets along. It's a really fascinating yeah. 
cheerful Christmas story, and then you got this one just like so much darker. It's a darker movie, and it's a darker behind the scenes of the movie too. Absolutely. So I did like that contrast between these few episodes. Um, and you know, I, I think it's always cool, even though I'm not the biggest fan of the movie, I think despite how you may or may not like something, it is nice to see when an audience can find its way to a project. And like this one, to, again, contrasting with Elf, which was a huge box office hit, this one kind of fizzled out. And they said it took over 10 years before it really kind of reached the heights it is at today. Like a lot of people consider this a Halloween or just Christmas. I guess you could just say a holiday classic, but it certainly wasn't for a long time. So it is nice that regardless of personal views that a lot of people that told, I guess, Tim Burton, they're just running into him or whatever, Henry Selleck, like, you know, it's a movie that kind of helped them not feel so alone or like an outsider. And a lot of, a lot of Burton projects are that way. So it's nice that it did kind of reach its destination, even if it took a little while. Well, and I like that each member of the crew also kind of got to share their own experience of when they realized like, hey, this is actually turning into something. Like they were all kind of each traveling in different parts of the world and saw like all the merchandise and, and just how much people were really falling in love with this movie. Um, and I think that's really cool when, when movies can find their footing. And, and now this really is a classic. So it, it took a while. But um, I, they even talked about how they spent two years making this movie and then they had like two weeks of runtime in theaters and they were just kind of like, oh, like a little disappointed. But then 10 years later, it has grown into this thing and, and they've really gotten a chance to see their work pay off. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love it. Um, So I, I think we are going to kind of start to wrap this up, but I did just want to bring up that, you know, both of these these stories of the of these movies really getting made do kind of really capture how much a lot of success is really tied to just really who you know and luck and and really betting on yourself i I think both of these films really do encompass that um elf with just all three of these people being nobodies and just seemingly getting connected in the perfect way to make this film and then the nightmare before christmas really with just kind of tim burton and and his friends who who really wanted to make this movie and and waited and bided their time until the opportunity arose when they could get this made yeah i mean that's how that's kind of how it goes some of the best stories are formed that way so it's nice they kind of gave us the little uh uh they broke down how everybody was connected i mean in, in the case of nightmare before christmas it's literally just some of the like henry selleck i'm not saying he got lucky i mean he had his own career but in the, in the context of this film he got lucky that his one of the few friends i guess that he made at disney on his contract was tim burton who left disney and then in 10 years became the most famous director working and then was like Hey, I have to go make a sequel to Batman. So, can you direct this movie? And he was like, "Okay." So, yeah, I mean, there there is obviously luck involved, but it is still cool to see how what they do with that opportunity. That's what matters. And in the case yeah. of Elf, it sounded like Vince Vaughn was one of John Favreau's longtime friends from doing Swingers, and then he was working with Will Ferrell on Old School. And I think there might have been like a producer connection with Vince Vaughn, and he was like, "Hey, yeah, you should, uh, you should get John Favreau to do it." And he was like, "Oh, okay, I'll have a meeting with him." And then it turns out that John Favreau brings a Rankin and Bass book to the meeting, and he has all these ideas that line up perfectly with the writer, who's finally like, "This is the guy we got to get." And so it led to John Favreau's big break, and that writer's big break, and Will Ferrell's big break, and so yeah, it, it's always cool to see how people response like a lucky opportunity and in these cases it was pretty cool i also think a kind of a common thread between these two production stories is friendship everybody who comes into a position to be able to help their friends took that opportunity i'd, I'd like to see breakdowns of more movies like this not even not just holiday movies but if we're talking holiday movies then i dip into our bracket and say i'd like to see a breakdown of home alone for sure 
Well, there actually is that, Keith. That This series on Netflix is called Movies That Made Us. So this the holiday movies that made us is a little side thing. Actually, and Home Alone is one of them. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I think there's six episodes and Home Alone is one of them. And I think Die Hard is as well. Oh, didn't know that. Cool. So anybody listening, if you're interested in this, it's the main series is called Movies That Made Us. And that is also on Netflix. And then this one is called Holiday Movies That Made Us. I'm definitely going to check out the other, like uh, the main version and other spinoffs they do after really liking the editing style of this and just really enjoying it. So anything else they put out, I'll be down. And like I said at the beginning, I hope next year they do a season two of this so we can understand some more holiday uh, breakdowns because, yeah, I just found it like a really actual great watch, really quick but fun. And everybody listening, let us know on Instagram. Shoot us a message at the Arnie's. If, if you like this style episode, we, we love talking about, you know, things that go into filmmaking. So if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. Shoot us a message. Okay, well, let's go ahead and, and wrap things up today, guys. Before we get out of here, we, of course, have to do our Arnie's podcast awards. This is a segment where we give an award to really anything in this episode. Keith may know the rules this week. He may not. We, we never really know with him. Keith, what do you got for us today? Hmm. I might have to give mine a little thought. Do you all have any in your head right now? Yeah, I can kick us off today. I'm going to be giving out the Swiss Army Knife Award. It is to the mental asylum that they had mm. the film in, in Elf. I mean, we didn't talk about yeah. that. I know. I yeah. For anybody that doesn't know, a bulk of this movie was actually shot in a mental asylum. Um, a lot of the interior of the houses were filmed there. The offices were filmed there. Um, the the mail room was filmed there and it was all in an abandoned mental asylum but they had to repurpose which is pretty crazy it was cool to see that well because whenever they talked about it whenever they brought that's where they filmed i was like oh you know what i started thinking because the whole the orphanage i remember from elf and the mail room i was like those gotta be where they shot some of those just they 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 looked great they made it look great but whenever i started thinking whenever i had the context i was like oh that's where they must have shot that and then they showed us a scene like and it was also the office i was like what and then the craziest one was they, they made the the Hobbs apartment in there. I was like, how'd they do that? <laughs> like, it was really cool to see how, like, with some great, you know, set dressers and art direction, they turned an abandoned mental asylum into a really upscale New York apartment. <laughs> so Well, it's also cool. really cool to see, too, like, with a limited budget, what people are forced to come up with and, and really get creative on how they spend their money. Yeah. So I'm going to have to, next time I watch it, I'm going to have to keep an eye out for, like, is that a mental institution? <laughs> like <you've> never seen. <laughs> uh, all right. So I have an award as well. And this one shouldn't surprise anybody. But to be fair, I suppose it's more of a nomination than an actual award because I don't know. Because my award today is for the secret asshole award with a question mark because I don't know. So my secret asshole award goes to Tim Burton. Now, oh, I thought you were going to say that junior executive from Elf. No, he he was just kind of a doof. He wasn't an <laughs> asshole. Just kind of a, a dummy. Um, I love Will Ferrell. <laughs> I just really fucking love Will Ferrell, man. Night of the Roxbury, man. Best movie ever. It's my favorite film. <laughs> anyway, I also love that scene where where he's like, "Yeah, my boss walked up to me and was like, you think this is funny?'" And he goes, and "I looked at him and I went, yeah." oh my gosh all right so yeah so it's not necessarily i'm giving my secret asshole award to tim burton because he kicked a hole in the wall obviously a pretty crazy response but at least i was like okay whatever um he didn't hurt anybody but the reason i'm giving this award is because then at a screening in response to somebody going i'm gonna rewrite the ending he apparently just had a freak out and screamed at her. <laughs> I was like, why? He threw an editing machine too, she said. 
Yeah, what a weird response. Like, just say, ah, no, we don't have time. Sorry. I mean, oh, it would have been a great idea, but we don't have time. He just starts screaming at her and breaking stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> this guy could be a secret asshole, so I'm going to have to give my award to him today. All right, Keith, close us out today. What do you got for us? My award would be the Best Lap Dance Award, and that will go to mm. Will Ferrell sitting on top of Bob Newhart's lap. Mm. I thought that was hilarious. Oh, wow. Whenever uh, he, you know, he's the big human, he's sitting on his little elf dad's lap. He's sitting on his <laughs> little elf lap. <laughs> Another great um, example of forced perspective where they, they have Will Ferrell sitting in a chair. They have um, kids' legs hanging out from underneath him. And then they have Bob Newhart 10 feet behind them yeah. to make it look like they're all sitting together. So cool. All right. Well, that's going to close us out today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss any of our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really appreciate that so we can continue to grow the show. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We will be back on Tuesday for our final bracket of 2020. It's time to decide the best holiday movie. I am literally so excited. I love holiday movies. I can't. I cannot wait. Um, and then, of course, we have our bonus series where we break down each episode of season two of The Mandalorian as they come out. Uh, we just did episode seven, which I hosted along with Austin. The finale comes out this Friday, which means you can expect Keith back in the hosting chair to help us break down our thoughts on the finale of The Mandalorian. That episode will come out on Sunday, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. Good stuff coming down the pipeline. That's right. I am excited for the finale. I'm also excited to watch episode seven and listen to you guys break it down. Uh, but yeah, check us out on Instagram. Feel free to direct message us your thoughts on this episode, our upcoming episode of Mandalorian, and also send us any movies you think should have made the bracket. And Keith, I really do hope you listen to that Mandalorian episode because we did put another little, we'll see if Keith listens to this episode test in there. I knew you would, so that's why I'm going to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember what it is. I might have to listen to it too. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, everybody. Well, thank you. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you later this week. Bye. Bye.